I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Oh, yes. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. Thanksgiving just passed. It did. We went to Las Vegas for Thanksgiving. We did. Um, when you were a kid, did your mom make a big deal out of Thanksgiving? I mean, yeah, that there was a flurry of food making for sure. And uh, but it was just the four of you. No, we would usually do something with. Oh, uh, and your grandma. My mom's parents usually because they oh. were better at everything. And your mom's a good cook. She's a very good cook. Yes, she used to make this really good kind of sage garlic stuffing but it had roasted gar like um actual roasted oh god i'm my mind is blinking garlic out. yeah but uh what do you call a cluster of garlic uh clo a clove a clove yeah a clove of garlic and uh, that would have been roasted so you're eating like big soft chunks of garlic and that that shit gives you gas Oh, well, what's that one restaurant, Stinking Rose? The, yeah. I, I think it's gone, though. I think it is gone. In Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, yeah, it is permanently closed. We ate there twice? Yeah. Yeah. I had bad heartburn. Heartburn, <laughs> gas, yeah. Because everything is like, they even have a garlic martini, or had a garlic martini. I mean, I like garlic, but it should ex accentuate the work. It shouldn't be the centerpiece. My... I grew up with my mom's family who it's a very large family. And when we were younger, we would all get together more often than we do now because everyone's, you know, all the cousins, I have a lot of cousins and everyone's middle-aged now. So they have their own traditions with their own families. But back then, yeah, it would be a big gathering. <clears throat> I always enjoyed that. Lots of food. And of course, you know, always had food issues. So <laughs> Yeah, but as a, just kid, up as, a kid, as a kid, you're not thinking about those things. No. Well, it's validating when uh, to see everyone else eating like an animal, for sure. But, but well, see, growing up, my dad always made it clear that he did not want fat kids. And so, for, for actually, from a young age, I was very aware of what, you know, my body shouldn't look like. Uh, but he, we would tear it up, but he would always, it would, that inevitably it would be a, sh a shower of guilt and mostly probably for himself because uh, he, I think, has body image issues. Well, my dad was exactly the same. Uh, didn't want us to be fat, also had body issues. And looking back, uh, I feel like I'm a lot like him. Like he would like binge eat and then all of a sudden be like i need to run every day for a week and <laughs> yeah my dad had bad knees and a bad back because he was a, a laborer and he would still get on that treadmill and and do sit-ups but you know when my friend's mother he he was always out in this yard shirtless my friend's mothers would always be like god is that your dad <laughs> <laughs> well then my mom is super tiny and has always eaten like a bird but always wants to feed you like a mountain of food yeah so that's always been really annoying. But anyway, moving on, I meant to talk about this last week, but Ross Dress for Less, that mm -hmm. discount department store we all know. I just have to say how raggedy that store is. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> I mean, isn't that part of its charm? Well, but you know, like the closest Ross to us is on Sunset and La Brea. That one's real raggedy. Yeah. Then there's the Beverly Connection across from the Beverly Center. That place has Ross, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Nordstrom Rack, and Off Sacks. 
So that's kind of like the the mecca of <laughs> discount department stores. But, you know, going on a weekend is a nightmare. So the, the only, I mean, the best time to go to that place is like during the week, during the day. But I usually go to the one on Sunset and La Brea because that's close to where I run some of my errands. And I just, I hate going to Ross. Oh, trying to, well, it's like there should be two of you because one should get in line right away to check out and somebody else goes and gets all the stuff you want. That's probably the worst part of Ross in particular is like there are never cashiers working. And, you know, there's always the one line for people making returns. And then the other line for people making purchases. And there are always people with big bags of bullshit to Ugh. return. Delta Work uh, on her podcast said that the trick to Ross is you need to all like buy always buy something like a little something stupid that you keep to return, so that you can go in the shorter line mm-hmm. every time you go in. Yeah, actually. So I need to start doing that, but then I don't really shop there that often. Usually, I go to Ross to buy like very random home things. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted a basket for under this buffet cabinet we have in the kitchen to hide some wires. And I knew that if I went to Target, their selection's so limited. And then whatever they do have in the form of like home baskets would be like probably 50 bucks. What about home goods? The closest home goods is not close. Oh, yeah. Not anymore to us. No. Or I could have gone to the Beverly Connection, but then it was um, it was during the week in the evening. So I thought, well, that's not worth the hassle to drive over there. So, um, of course I found the basket. I liked it was only $11. So it was perfect, but then yeah, waiting forever. And then the thing I hate the most about Ross waiting in line and it's every Ross store I go to. So I don't know if this is their style, but they always call the next customer as soon as the current customer pays. Uh So then you always have some asshole like, well, it's not their fault. They've been called up, but they're standing there while it's like, I'm trying to put my shit away or, I mean, I pay with my phone, but so I'm pretty fast. But then these poor people who are like trying to put their physical cash back, it's just like, this is annoying. And y'all have the nerve to double up on people waiting with one cashier and 20 people in line. Oh, I hate it. I hate Ross so much, and then I, I, but I feel compelled to go all the time. <laughs> oh, see, I don't. I I will only go with you because I, I never go on my own. But I remember I really didn't like the one in near MacArthur Park. Uh, there's also one in Culver city we've been to. Well, nowadays, cause there's selection of like gym clothes and cause I, when I was younger, that would be the place to go to buy like gym clothes. Um, sometimes like shoes, but now their selection is the only thing I would ever buy at Ross are candles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always have an older iPhone. I never have the current iPhone. So it's pretty easy to find like chargers, uh, I, I usually buy my phone cases from Ross because I have an older phone, so they have them. And then, uh, like, home stuff. Like, if I need a random little, like, box or mirror, <laughs> some rug for the bathroom. But anyway, we also didn't talk about this. Uh, a few weeks ago, we watched an episode of Ricky Lake called oh, Get yeah. a Grip Doll, You're Too Fat to Be a Drag Queen, yeah. which aired originally on January 14th, 1997. We watched it because I think I was watching Darian Lake yes. talk about she was being interviewed by Maddie Morphosis. That's right. Uh-huh. And she said that she was on Ricky Lake with Pandora Box. So I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Well, so, Maddie's like, it's online from some 
Icelandic or Dutch television. Yeah. So we watched the episode. It was interesting. <laughs> it was, it made me sad. Uh, I, and Ricky Lake's, I think heart was in the right place, but I hate, there's this fucking white bitch that gets up with a big goofy ass smile on her face, telling these Queens that she thinks they're disgusting. And it just, Oh, Ugh, just makes my blood boil. And you know, the the I remember after we watched this, I said we should talk about it because the only people that are consistent, the, consistently nice, are the black women that get up and talk and tell the telling these people that they should be happy and do what they want. Yeah, I, it, you know, clearly Ricky Lake is not. You know, I I think she probably would consider herself an ally. And for the late nineties, I feel like the only way to have because you know Joan Rivers did it. Yes. With love. Other people like Geraldo, Phil Don. Well, Phil Donahue was very in the middle, but like Geraldo would have. It was sensational. Gays and, and, and transgender people and drag queens on. But it was definitely meant to be sensational and critical. Whereas Joan, in her way, I think was also an ally. Yeah, I agree. And I think Ricky Lake was And I think well. she was too. But back then, the only way to have those type of people on is you kind of had to make them open for ridicule. Yeah. So she did. And like you said, the people would get up and make awful comments about these people who are just because, you know, the other issue is shows like Ricky Lake and Jenny Jones, all those really sensational talk shows, daytime talk shows back then, they would pay to have people come on and pretend yes. to have issues. Yes. So that's why Darian Lake was talking about it, because she and Pandora and their other friend went on pretending to have a feud. Yes. And then they get a free trip to New York and a little stipend out of it. And I had a good friend. I have a good friend who did it back in the day twice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like basically like, oh, I have a girlfriend. I'm going to come out to her on this show. So he was on Ricky Lake pretending to be straight and then coming out to his girlfriend. But they were best friends and they, they, they went for the free trip to New York. But, but you know, that all of that is, uh, clearly calibrated for a heteronormative audience because anybody that's queer knows exactly what's going on. And I don't know that the net result is positive. No. Like, yes, queer people are being given a platform, but also they're being made fun of. And, and then it's not until the very end that she says, you know, we should accept people and let them live. And I support you. She says something she, to that effect. She does say something affirming at the end. And she does throw some shade at some of those shitty ass audience members. She does. There are a couple but, of moments when she does kind of stick up, but you know, overwhelmingly for the 45 minutes, it's just like, let's make fun of these men in drag who don't particularly look great. Most of whom are, I mean, all of, there are only a couple who aren't like severely overweight. I mean, it's just like, it's just kind of a mess. And then she lets them all do like a, like a lip sync performance, but mm -hmm. they're not very, you know, it's all very rushed. And so it feels more like a spectacle and like people are being made fun of. Which... Yeah. It's very carnivalesque. Yeah. But anyway, moving on to the restaurant section, we, we went to Crossroads, that vegan restaurant on, you know, <laughs> Melrose for your birthday. Someone, a subscriber slash listener sent us a, a gift card. So that was also nice, but, yes. and we've been there before. But you know, um, I straight up forgot that. Well, it's been years since we've been there. I straight up forgot that was vegan. Well, because I'm looking at these like scallop mushrooms. That's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I don't, I don't like when vegan like menus try to like make the food seem like it's meat. I don't need it to be like meat. Like they like we ordered the calamari, the which calamari. is clearly not calamari. Freaky. It's mushrooms. Uh huh. So why don't you just what what did I say? Call them like crunchy 
country or fried shrooms or something oh i think i said like fried mushroom sticks or but it's like because it is confusing Mm -hmm. like every dish had a name that replicated meat so it's like i'm not getting chicken though i'm getting (laughs) no but the food was good i was confused why the piccata did not come with noodles yeah the pricing is i mean it's it was it was good. It's premium pricing. It's, I wouldn't say it's fine dining, but um, it's a really cute restaurant. I would recommend it. We did order more than we needed to. Yes, we probably ordered like three dishes too many, but but you know the server goes well. We recommend because the plates are small. That you get are. like two to three per person. <laughs> so we ordered like seven things, but yeah, we probably ordered like three things too many. I would go back though. Mm-hmm. Films released we didn't cover. Disney's Wish. Yes. Uh, with Ariana DeBose, I believe, voicing the main character, directed by Chris Buck and Fawn Vera Sunthorn. And it's about a little girl who wishes upon a star, and the star comes down to greet her. That's all I know about it. Genie. Oh, this is with Melissa McCarthy. You, <laughs> we got a link for this weeks ago, and you did not want to watch this. That trailer looks so crunchy and yeah. predictable. Yeah. Good Burger 2. Uh, I never saw the first Good Burger, but this new one uh, reunites the main stars, of course, directed by Phil Trail on Paramount+. Plus. I am familiar with Good Burger. Uh, I was mildly interested in watching this, but I don't think I had the energy to actually write notes and talk about it. I remember the trailer for the first one with, of course, the the, the famous line about welcome to Good Burger, blah, 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 Can I, whatever that line take is. Order, Can I take yeah. your order, please? Leave the world behind. Uh, this is a Netflix film. It opened at the AFI Film Festival, and it has an interesting cast: Mahershala Ali and Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke. And I still want to see this, directed by Sam Esmail. Netflix is dropping it in theaters this week, but it'll soon be on Netflix, so we'll probably just watch it then. Maestro. Maestro, where Maestro. Uh, Bradley Cooper's uh, sophomore directorial outing, where he also stars as Leonard Bernstein, the uh, queer multi-hyphenate uh, who's married to a woman uh, played by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, and dare I say, Mulligan gets the greater role uh, by far, I think. And then, you know, I saw this at Venice where I reviewed it and we didn't have time to fit it in this November, uh, but it, it, it's very well made. And um, I, I I could see Mulligan getting Oscar attention for this, but I, I did really like it. And everybody made it to do about the prosthetic nose that Cooper's wearing in it. But I, I didn't find it. I didn't find it distracting at all. There's, well, Bradley I, Cooper doesn't have a small nose. Yeah, he has a... a, a a well he has a schnoz on him too so but people <laughs> it's not like uh what's her name zoe saldana doing nina simone nina simone that was wild to but me. it's funny the poster art that they were showing in venice on these big billboards because part of the plot point is these two people just fucking chain smoked but they have a this cigarette looks like a spliff but it looks like it's in his hands and he's holding it up and it looks like to match the size of his nose, which I thought was odd, but uh, it's, it's really worth watching And Netflix dropped it in theaters this week. It'll soon be on their streaming platform. I'm going to tear this up. Menus plus Sears lace tros gross. The, yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. Le Troy gros. Uh, that is the new four hour documentary from Frederick Wiseman, who is at least in his eighties now. Um, and documents all kinds of things, but he is following a restaurant that has had a 
what's the Michelin star rating? What's the highest rating? Is that five star? Uh, well, no, I think a Michelin star rating that that is the rating, like Michelin. Is it? A th- but what's the highest? I thought there was a star system. I think if something's Michelin star rated, then that means that it is the best. But you can collect more stars. Then can you? You can get more than one or however many. I don't oh, know. is that okay? I mean, I don't. To, to be honest, I don't really give a shit. But um, yeah, I don't know. But it, I think he's uh, stationed himself there and documented this renowned restaurant. I mean, it sounds interesting, and in that you need to eat first. But uh, eventually, I'll I'll watch that eventually. I do like Frederick Wiseman. Monster. This I was hoping you'd agree to watch, but we didn't. Uh, it's the new Hirokazu Koreeda film, which competed in Cannes this past year and won the Queer Palm. Even though it ha- there are some queer themes, but you know Koreeda, the John Cameron Mitchell jury, and I don't know if you remember uh, talking about how obnoxious he was at that award ceremony. Um, Koreeda was very reluctant to accept the award, but uh, he did, and it is a lovely. Uh, if you're you haven't seen any Koreeda, I bet. Um, and he's pretty consistent, but I, I did like it. It is worth a watch. The Naughty Nine. This is a Christmas movie starring Danny Glover, uh, directed by Alberto Belli, and that's all I know about it. Robot Dreams. This I missed at Cannes. I was in some sidebar section, but it's a animated film by Pablo Berger, uh, who's a Spanish filmmaker, who's Blanca Nieves, uh, Snow White, a, a very beautiful black and white Snow White rendition from damn near a decade ago I really liked. But uh, I would watch this for him. American Symphony? Uh, this is a new documentary from Matthew Heineman uh, about the musician John Baptiste, who I'm c- completely ignorant about. Uh, but I think it's Netflix. So it again, they, it's got a theatrical. It'll be on their streaming service soon. Do justice. You almost had me ask for a screener for this, but it's uh, Jeff Fahey and Kellen Lutz. Is that right? Oh, that's right. Directed by somebody named Javier Reyna. I mean, you just need to look at the poster to know. I didn't think it'd be good, but I was curious to see what Kellen is up to nowadays. Well, I think he's the lead. Uh, Yeah. Fry bread face and me. It's funny. Your sister wanted to watch this on Netflix while we were there for Thanksgiving. And I shot her ass down. Directed by Billy Luther. <laughs> and you were not, you were like, nah. I just needed something that, I assumed it wasn't going to be an upbeat film. So It's short. It's about two Navajo sisters. Uh, and I don't know about the plot beyond that. But uh, yeah, eventually I would watch this too. Smoke Sauna Sisterhood. This is, as the uh, title suggests, about a group of women that sauna. I don't, are they in Finland, Sweden? I, I don't know. I'm also, I just know that it's directed by Anna Hintz, and that was released. Lastly, they shot The Piano Player. This is a re-restored release of the classic new wave film by Francois Truffaut, which I have seen once, because um, it's part of the Criterion Collection, like, like, in the first 100 films or so, I think they put out. So that means that we'll probably get a nice new Blu-ray of list, Blu-ray uh, release of this eventually if Janice still has it, which I think they do. Projects of interest. Bell? Uh, Benoit Jacquo, who's worked many, many times with my gal, Isabelle Huppert, uh, he has a new project that I think just started shooting in France, starring uh, Guillaume Canet and uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, who you know I also am a fan of. And it's based on a book by Georges Simenon, who is a fantastic mystery genre writer. Uh, 
who wrote countless, countless books, but I've, and I've read several, but uh, I think the title of this book is The Death of Belle, Le, Le Mort de Belle. Uh, anyway, with that cast and that director, I can't wait. And uh, Gainsbourg has worked with Jacques Quo as well. I think they're, they had a film that was at, was it Rotterdam or Locarno, but it was called Susanna Adler, which was pretty decent and went nowhere. But anyway, let's take a break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The title of this uh, podcast will be Maxine's Baby, the Tyler Perry story, because I figured people would be more interested in this than our secret film, <laughs> which is a different movie we'll talk about at the end. Mm-hmm. But we watched the Amazon Prime documentary, Maxine's Baby, the Tyler Perry story. It's an intimate portrait of Tyler Perry and his harrowing, but faithful road to the top of an industry that didn't always include him. I saw on Rotten Tomatoes that someone's pull quote is that premise. Oh, okay. Someone you know, actually, oh. uh, who said it was uh, fresh. I would also say it's fresh. Um, one criticism, uh, someone who said it was rotten, they wrote, made for fans and fans alone. Um, I would say the opposite. So I am very, very familiar with Tyler Perry. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was nothing really illuminating about this documentary. I think this is for people who have a curiosity about him. Like, I'm sure most people in the United States know who Tyler Perry is at this point, mm-hmm. but they may not be familiar with his body of work and how successful he is. So I think, I, I mean, white people aren't familiar with his body of work. <laughs> so I think this documentary does a very good job of presenting his work. Mm-hmm. It's directed by two people, one of whom is his baby mama. Which one is? Uh, Galila. Oh yeah, not Armani Ortiz. Yeah. Uh, so what did you think about this documentary? I mean, I was curious when they announced this is the, an AFI centerpiece, you were out of town, but I, I, I knew that we would be watching this and, uh, of course waited to watch it with you. Um, I don't think it's for the fans. I think it's more of a testament of his importance as, and, and yeah, he's an artist. He's, he's a film director and the, a trailblazer at that. And what he has been able to do is really impressive. But at the same time, I think this is certainly not something where we get to know him as a person intimately. And it's just kind of like his, his public persona, very guarded. uh, And you will only see what he wants to show you. And that's fine. I mean, you know, we've talked about this film several times since we've seen it and nobody owes anybody anything about their personal life. Uh, but I, I know that a whole, you know, host of people will be watching this wanting some other kind of revelations. But I, I think that if you appreciate any of his work, it's a really lovely uh, snapshot of his filmography. The documentary basically outlines his childhood. So he had a very abusive father. Um, He grew up in New Orleans, was very close with his mother. Uh, We don't really hear much about his childhood, except that he was uh, 
emotionally and physically abused. And then he kind of says in passing, which we already know that he was sexually abused. And he's talked about it more in depth on Oprah than he did in his documentary. He basically just says it like, yeah, I was abused and there was some sexual stuff. And then, and that's all we get, which is fine. It's his story to tell. And then we move on to him deciding that he wanted to write stories like plays. And he says the inspiration for that was when he was a kid and he was being abused, there was like a little crawl space under his house and he would go and hide there. And he said that in his mind, he would envision the stories of like, because he could see the neighbor's houses across the street, that he would imagine the kind of stories uh, that are unfolding in those homes. And so that's how what he credits to him being able to write so many stories so fast and having so many stories to tell. And then we see that he did wrote a, write a play and tried to put it on. It was not successful. He tried and tried and tried to the point where he was living out of his car, which is what people like to cite as his stint of being homeless. Mm -hmm. And... He says when he finally decided to get, give up, he was given an opportunity one last time to put on this play at the House of Blues, and it was a success. And that was the turning point because now he's selling out small theaters, um, namely like in the Chitlin Circuit, which is, uh, you know, basically referring to sort of smaller theaters in the South that cater to Black audiences. And then he grew into all of the Medea plays in the late 90s and early 2000s and selling out like major spaces across the country making millions and millions of dollars having this audience he also you know this is before social media had a mailing list with millions of people on it so he would just announce a show in a city and it would sell out without any marketing right so he had this huge audience a bunch of money and then he went to hollywood uh specifically lionsgate and said he wants to make a movie. Well, uh, well, Lionsgate was the only one who believed in him. They the president. him, I think, right? And they were very curious about him because they saw the numbers he did, and they're like, well, no one knows who this guy is, meaning all the white people who mm -hmm. were in charge of all the studios. And so the president of, Lions, of Lionsgate at the time said that he was, the way he worded it was funny. He's like, we had a diversity committee that I would sometimes. That every now and then. That every now and then I would be a part of. <laughs> like, Wow. And he said in one of the meetings, I asked, does anyone know who Tyler Perry is? And he said every black person in the meeting raised their hands, but none of the white people. And he said, well, something's going on here. Well, so that's when they decided yeah. to give him a chance. And that's when we that's when we got Diary of a Mad Black Woman, which was number one. And then Tyler Perry had a string of number one films. And then it talks about him transit parlaying that success into uh, making a studio, a movie studio. So he's the first black person to have a film studio uh -huh. and his is not just like some little rinky dink thing. I oh mean, no, it's, it's more impressive than the studios you see in Hollywood. And then the success he has seen with all of his television shows, which is what has made him a billionaire. The only thing I didn't know watching this documentary is that he developed this model of producing television, television shows. Cause the goal with the television show is to get to a hundred episodes so you can get into syndication mm -hmm. and that's where the money is. But Tyler Perry's had this model that they're calling the 1090 model, which is that he went to the studio saying, I'll pay for 10 episodes. I'll give them to you. You air them. 
And if they're a success, then you agree to buy 90 episodes, which is very different from what it's always been, which is people will make a pilot, they'll run the pilot. If the pilot goes well, then the studio or the network says, we'll, we'll take 12 more or 22 more. Yes, very much more precarious. But yeah. because he was, he had the resources to kind of call the shots, he was like, nah, I'll like, I will produce 10. You don't have to give me a penny. But if, but if it works, then you're, you're buying 90 so that we're in syndication. So that's where um, a lot of his success has come from in recent years. Talks about Medea a little bit. He really doesn't talk too much about that character, which has really made him. Mm -hmm. And then he, something that he does allow in the documentary that I think made me give it three out of five instead of two and a half is that he does have detractors in there who are interviewed and they're given space to criticize him. And I thought like that was pretty cool, but I think he only felt comfortable doing that because he is so successful now. Well, right. And they are very tastefully. And they are very tastefully um, critical. Criticizing, criticizing him. Um, and then we do, so in the previous podcast, I had apologized for saying that he would never have his baby mama or baby in the documentary. And in the trailer, we see that he does. But then in the film, we see that he does have his son in the documentary, but that his face is blurred and the child's back is always to the audience we do hear the child talk and then we do see the baby mama she is not introduced but yet. she's not introduced he says her name a couple of times because they're not together shockingly they're right. not romantically they co-parent now um but we do see her like in the periphery so we do get a little bit of that and he talks about how important it is for him to basically be the father that he didn't have which was a very loving supportive dad but that's it. It's all about, I mean, it's 95, 96% about his career. <clears throat> and that's fine. We did talk a lot about how, you know, celebrities and public figures don't owe us anything beyond what they provide us. But I don't know. I feel like, and Tyler says this in the documentary, that so much of his work is about him doling out this morality and this advice. And I do think that if I'm going to take someone's advice, I think I do have a right to know who you are as a person. And, well, you know, does, but, you know, part of one of his tenets is he understands his audience and he's not really going to do something that upsets the devotion that he has of his core audience. I know this always seems messy, but, you know, in this instance, I think it's relevant. I think Tyler Perry is a closeted gay man. I do, too. So and. There, there's nothing like if that's how he wants to present himself, I can go on and on about how maybe that has worked best for him and he's happy that way. So who am I to say anything except that I feel like all of his story, all the stories he tells, they're so rooted in like, like women, like he's telling these stories about women and he's always giving like relationship advice and, you know, I mean, every play, every movie sort of ends with, if it's not a Medea saying it directly, then it's some other character basically saying like, well, this is what you should do. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think a lot of what he says makes sense to me. So I'm not saying that a gay man can't give relationship advice to a heterosexual woman, but I just think that someone who's built their entire brand on being like this moral compass mm -hmm. and this like, well, soothsayer shouldn't we sort of understand who they are as a person because you know what it feels like all these gurus like that one netflix one with the people that couple who are telling people who their soulmates are or whatever 
shouldn't we know who you are before we listen to you tell us what to do well the th- you know the interesting thing about him is this, this character he's a, his character is a it's a drag performance and but him outside of drag outside of the media character is very again stiff and reserved and rigid and that, that comes across in his you know acting performances in in within his own films um and you know if you compare that to martin lawrence or eddie murphy or robin williams or dustin hoffman like heterosexual men that are very secure in their sexuality don't come across the same way it, it seems like he is he's holding on to something that he doesn't want us to see, which is perfectly all right. Yeah, I, and I'm not so much harping on his sexuality. I'm just saying that I do think there's some validity in questioning who people are when their entire brand is about, you know, it's like Oprah, her entire brand is about like, you know, cultivating your spirit and being the best you can. And and then it's like, well, then I think we do need a more, like a glimpse into her life and what she's doing. And she does provide that, which is partially why she was so successful because she had a daily talk show where people sort of got to hear her every day talking about things. And mm-hmm. so you felt, even though we probably don't know the real Oprah, we get enough sense of who she is as a person to trust her in a way. But, you know, for somebody that has, as he often says, such reverence for black women. And that was kind of one of the detractors saying like, you know, he's also somewhat blind to the issues of black women uh, or, or they're kind of pared down conveniently for the moralizing that goes on within a lot of these narratives. It's that I I wanted to hear more of a discussion about, you don't have to work so damn fast on all these films because a lot of the work comes out shoddy. They're also rooted in a lot of the pain of your youth, which, you know, storytelling was, uh, escapism and a crutch but sometimes as i've said before you know those those crutches sometimes hobble us so he's not shown any growth as a storyteller or a, a craftsman uh, as a as well a, he's as limited a, because he's, he's limited but he is a billionaire so if you care so much about black women why aren't you financing projects that they can do well that's what i've always said he's in a position to well here's the thing i think he's limited because for you know, 20 years now, he hasn't really, he, what is his relationship to women? It's basically like seeing his mother and his aunt and people around him. But, you know, like, actually, like, what romantic relationships has he had with women? I would say they're probably very limited. So it, it seems like a lot of his stories tell the same thing. They're always rooted in abuse, because that's what he saw as a kid. Yes. He like it, we re- we watched Medea's family reunion, which I guess we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, which I, is a it was a good double feature with this. I think that that's probably the best Medea movie because I think it, the storytelling of the female characters seems a little more meaty, and then Medea's kind of pared down in this one. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like all of these characters and all these movies are the same. They're downtrodden. They're he's just telling the story of like the one woman he has in his head, and I feel like that's because you don't. You're not accustomed to being around women in any other way. Well, like, certainly now. not romantically it's, or and sexually. And not now. Like you're in a you're in a bubble now. So But again, I'm not saying that he can't tell stories. Well, I don't think he's a great storyteller. I think he just because you can spit out a bunch of stuff. Yeah, he's like it pours, which, which are all the same like pours, all the same stories. Like it pours out of me. It's like, yeah. And and there he there's you know, his work ethic is about not wasting things. And and that is very honorable, but at the same time at the writing stage 
you can afford to take your little time and come up with something better. Yeah, he's so into being efficient. and But it's also like you can afford to, instead of shooting acrimony in seven days, why didn't maybe we take two weeks? Maybe, maybe it could have been 20% better. I don't know. And because, you know, he took a risk, I think, with something like for colored girls and which I think is his best work. But at the same time, like, you know, I talked to some black women that are like, he had that he had no business. Well, I just that, feel you know? like you said for someone who claims to champion black women so much, what you're in a position where you could have your studio foster like black female storytellers. And he had, you know, he produced that, uh, is that Tina Chisholm movie peoples. Do you remember that from a decade yeah, ago? Yeah. A but decade he, ago. But it's his like, name was splashed all over it. Yeah. You see her name. Why can't he just be the media mogul who uplifts these people who he claims to be? It, it, I, I think it was on an extra feature of a disc somewhere, but it's Spike Lee and Denzel. I think it's after, uh, the follow-up Mo, Mo better blues, which is not a film I love, but, they those two men are talking about like who's gonna uh, the roles for black women i guess we got to do that you and i it's like okay uh, he that, also that's how it feels like i you're taking it upon yourself but you you could share the wealth in a different way tyler also there are a few moments in the documentary that paint a picture of him being probably a very difficult man to be around like because yes. he does wield a lot of power and yeah there are a few moments where it's just like oh like yeah you seem like you're probably not great to be around these days but and for somebody of his stature you don't there's not a lot of unions with other filmmakers or other strange interesting pairings i i think because he has to be in control and, and that's fine i mean he says that oprah is kind of like his like blueprint and sure. i can see that he's very much like an alpha has all the power does what he wants to do doesn't take well to criticism and that's fine to end on a positive note. I mean, I did get emotional watching. I mean, just for what he represents, like this black man who was able to um, be so successful in an industry that was not checking for him or anyone who was like him. That's outright hostile. Yeah. Is just, I mean, it's, it's hard to not get emotional seeing all of his success. And I'm very proud of what he represents. So I'm glad he exists. I'm glad he's successful. I want him to continue to be successful and provide, you know, while I'm criticizing him for not allowing other people to tell stories, he does offer a lot of opportunities he does. to people of color. He does. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. So overall, I think the documentary is good. It does a good job of showcasing what this man has achieved. And I'm very proud of this black man who has achieved all of this success in spite of all the things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's how I felt ending it. He, he does have an American dream story, you know, yeah. but yeah, you're not getting anything about who this man is personally, which makes me uncomfortable. But you know, it, I, I have the same criticism for him as I do for somebody like Wes Anderson or a Baz Luhrmann. It's just, I don't know. I want to see a little growth in the storytelling, but what he has, a, there are there are little gems in there in his body of work. There are. As a public figure and an actor, I think he's very stiff because he can't be himself. Yeah, kind of like Queen Latifah used to seem. So <laughs> it's so it's kind of like you know I don't I don't necessarily need to see Tyler Perry. I just need him to continue to do the work, and I would prefer he highlight other people since he's not going to give us who he is. Sure. Really. Yeah. 
but but that said i we were were hungry to watch a tyler perry movie your sister wanted to watch the family that prays which she liked and i haven't seen in years with kathy bates and elfie woodard but uh i suggested the only medea film i haven't seen which is 2006's medea's family reunion well that's maxine's baby let's take a break movies we watched for fun medea's family reunion uh I know I had seen it. I think I saw it like in theaters when it came out, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had never seen it. Correct. It w- we've had it on two polls, a Kiki Palmer poll and a Lynn Whitfield. Yeah. I think from what I recall from the others, because I've seen all of them, I think this might be my favorite Medea's or Medea movie. I think it is. Well, I really like the first Boo because not because of the uh, other ladies in the supporting cast. But yes, I would agree. This is the best one. I like it because the central story of the two sisters with their like awful mother, Lynn Whitfield, is pretty emotional and mm-hmm. effective. I think the performances from the two sisters and Lynn Whitfield are good. Lisa Arundel and Rochelle Eitz, who played uh, Sparkle in the, oh, that's right. in the TLC movie. <laughs> No, not Sparkle, Pebbles. Pebbles, sorry, Sparkle. Sparkle. I was like, who in the hell was Sparkle at TLC? <laughs> um, no, Pebbles. But um, but I also like it because Medea feels a little more subdued in a way that like I actually kind of take her seriously. Mm-hmm. I never liked Joe, Medea's brother, who's t- basically who is t- Tyler Perry's playing. The makeup on Joe always is so distracting to me. But yeah, but um, yeah, I I would. If a person's never seen a Medea movie, I would say start with Medea's Family Reunion. <laughs> but you get, well, you know, watching it right after Maxine's Baby, this really is an exemplification of all his main themes. Um, but yeah, Blair Blair Underwood is the uh, abusive, abusive fiance. And then Boris Kojo as a bus driver, which is highly unbelievable, uh, is romancing the other sister, the poor, there's a poor sister and a rich sister, uh, the poor sister, Vanessa. Also, his wig looks pretty good considering other men in Tyler Perry movies have, are like, I mean, he's famous for making these men's wigs look crazy. This is true. It's just, you know. Although it's so weird to see Boris Kojo with a junior afro. Right. <laughs> Uh, but he's nice to see Jennifer Lewis in a bit part, do, giving, giving, fulfilling like the Eartha Kit energy. Friday Foster. From Friday energy, Foster. Yeah. <laughs> I bring you springtime in Paris. That it's all these like people hanging from the ceilings playing the harp or whatever. So it's about uh, Blair Underwood, uh, his, Lisa, the Rochelle char- Rochelle's character breaks it off with him because he's been abusing her. But it's the mother's meal ticket because she's run out of money and she's been tapping into her, her rich daughter's trust fund. But this wedding is kind of crazy because Jennifer Lewis is the wedding planner in her springtime in Paris. This The wedding gets called off and then the other sister, they decide to get married. So all is not lost. But there are people hanging from the ceiling as angels and they have to hang up there for a long time with all these delays. Yeah. What, who had, what if you had to pee? I don't know. But, uh, you know, you get a bunch of other people in here. Uh, Cicely Tyson, of course. There's a whole subplot with Kiki Palmer as a, as a little girl that Medea very unbelievably has to foster. Yeah, Medea goes to court for, like, violating her probation. And Judge Maybelline Ephraim is the presiding judge. And she tells her, well, you either go to jail or you become the foster mother of Kiki Palmer. And it's like, what? Right. <laughs> oh, and then Tyler Perry also plays Medea's 
attorney. Yes. Who, again, Tyler Perry out of drag is just so unappealing on screen. Like, he just has no presence. He seems so stiff. He's so stiff. Like, I'm not going to give you anything. That's why, like, in the Why Did I Get Married movies, it's like, uh, poor Sharon Leal has to bounce off this. (laughs) Mm Mm-mm. Moving on, Eight Women. Oh, and Maya Angelou is her last film oh. uh, on screen presence. Oh, Cicely Tyson's in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Eight Women. Eight Women we watched on my birthday because uh, we'll hopefully be watching this week a new Isabelle film where she reunites with Francois Ozon. But you had never seen this. I haven't seen it since 2004. I think that it could have been better, but it is a you know a, such an excellent cast of these French legends. I don't even know what I gave it. Did I, did I even rate it on Letterboxd? I'm checking. Um, I would give it two and a half out of five. I, you know, I didn't care for it. It's okay as a murder mystery. It's not giving me anything. Like the twist is kind of like okay, the, yeah. But like it, it, it's not uninteresting the twist, but it it also feels so like it doesn't match the vibe of the movie because it's also a musical that I don't like the music, but it's also, you know, he's doing Jacques Demy, right? Which Deneuve, who made Deneuve famous uh, in the sixties. So there, there are some nice allusions to, uh, you know, classic French cinema, but yeah, it it seems like a, a little bit of a waste. And I think, you know, when I was a young man and was very into, uh, boundary pushing scene, like you know, Fanny Ardant and Catherine Deneuve having a, a lesbian scene. And to watching it now, it feels like, oh, it's, it feels a little forced. I don't know. It's a musical that doesn't have good music, it's a murder mystery that's not very mysterious. Mm-hmm. And then you have like these fabulous women in here. It needed to be more, namely the main three it uh, Isabel, be Fanny, and, and Catherine. And you would expect it to just be a bitch. Like what you would want is a bitch fest. It needed to be cunty. And, and it's, it's not at all. It And then the younger actors, except for the maid who I did like. Emmanuel Bayard's lovely. Yes. yes. But the two daughters, oh, like, y'all could have kept them. Well, there were two maids. Oh, that's right. The black woman I also thought was fine. Except that even her storyline of being a, like a closeted lesbian with Fanny Ardon, mm-hmm. it just doesn't push any. I mean, maybe for France and the... Night, early 2000s like that, even my impression of france in the early 2000s like french cinema at that time would allow for something a lot more provocative well this is and this is set in the 60s uh but it, it you know dealing with class and race and gender issues but in- you also sold this movie to me i mean you you even say it on the podcast that it's fantastic so then i think i was expecting something well in my mind's eye it was yeah. and i do like isabel in it as the bitchy sister uh, who's chronically, she's a hypochondriac, but uh, she's a lot of fun. And it, from what I remember at the time, Deneuve was very huffy about Ozone saying he's a fan of actresses, not women. She has since worked with him. Because he's a homosexual. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's another one like Tyler Perry. He, he poops out. Are, this is the Tyler Perry is a homosexual podcast. No, <laughs> no as in the work schedule, he... Ozone poops, poops out a movie a year, and a lot of them do leave something to be desired. Uh, I, I, I think he, from his early days, like his rampling films, I love the best, like Under the Sand and Swimming Pool. But Or even, you know, but again, I haven't watched them in years, See the Sea and Sitcom. We had a movie night years ago for Criminal Lovers, which is kind of a queer Hansel and Gretel oh. rehash. 
Um, I, I, I think he's one that could slow down a little bit too. Next, Coupe de Torchon. Coupe de Torchon, uh, Clean Slate, which is based on the uh, pulp noir novel Population 1280 by Jim Thompson, which I just read. So, and I wanted to re oh. I wanted to rewatch this because I hadn't seen it since I was in college. But in, in, you know, we had watched Stand by Me the other day, and there's opening narration from Richard Dreyfuss that says that uh, Castle Rock population is 1281, which has to be a reference to this Jim Thompson novel, which I do know that Yorgos Lanthimos has, has wanted to remake. Anyway, love Jim Thompson. Uh, the book is set in 1910 American South, and this adaptation by Bertrand Tavernier moves it to 1938 Senegal, and it's about this white sheriff uh, played by Philip Noiré, who's married to Chabrol's wife, uh, Stéphane Audran, and very unhappily so. And he's just this lazy sheriff that gets tired of being pushed around and just starts killing people. Uh, but he has a couple of mistresses, one of them, which is a very spunky and young Isabelle Huppert, who is worth her weight in gold in this. Uh, it's very dark. I was surprised now having read the book and rewatching it, how close Tavernier stays to the core elements of the narrative. Uh, but transposing it from the American South to, of course, you know, these racist French assholes and, late there we're at the advent of world war ii here uh in senegal but uh yes it's it's highly recommended definitely worth a watch next beauty and the beast this is the 77 version by yuraj hers uh czech filmmaker who might be best known to western eyes for the cremator which is excellent part of the criterion collection uh i really like his film morgana by the way, but it, I had never seen this take his take on Beauty and the Beast, which uh, I love how it shot. The, the beast looks like this bird creature uh, who is very interesting. Of course, you already know the story, but uh, it definitely worth a look. What year is it? I think 77, 76 or 77. Oh, I want to look up what the beast looks like. Moving on. The Groom. This was a short film I found uh, a version of directed by Elam Klimov, who's probably best known for his, I mean, Come and See is just this grueling fucking masterpiece. But uh, who, of course, used to be married to uh, Larissa Shapitko before she died, which is such a tragedy because her two features that I've seen are amazing, Wings and... Um, Oh, God, I'm forgetting the name. The my my mind is blinking. But um, the ascent. Sorry, the ascent is amazing filmmaking. Anyway, she died early, so I've always been on the hunt to see some of his other films. He did a film on Rasputin that I found very <laughs> confusing. Uh, but this is a short feature he did about a little boy and a girl in a classroom, basically. We're watching the Timothee Chalamet Willy Wonka movie this week. So in preparation, we watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We sure did. So Gene Wilder versus Johnny Depp. Who directed the Gene Wilder one? The Gene Wilder one was directed by oh, uh, Mel Stewart. So Mel Stewart versus Tim Burton. Yes. Um, I think Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka is... Much more appealing. I agree. He seems more sinister. I see all these memes like 
Gene Wilder is the only one who looks like he would actually let those kids die. Yeah. So I did like that. Um, and Jack, Oscar winner Jack Elbertson as the grandpa, I think, is much more vibrant. We need to talk about that grandpa. These, All these movies where you have like five, six adults in like old shack and they can't make ends meet. I don't understand. And then the minute, the especially in the Gene Wilder one, the minute charlie bucket gets the opportunity to go to the chocolate factory that man who has spent decades we're told in the band 22 years 22 years he's only in his 60s so what happened in their 40s when he gets up he has a spring in his step and he is ready to go do you know how mad i would be oh yeah i've been making this cabbage soup trying to feed this family and your ass could have got up out the bed and gone to work Ugh, I, that alone is enough for me to be annoyed by the movie but yeah, I, I just don't think I like this concept or the story, like the basics of it, like, oh, these bratty kids kind of are taught a lesson and the, you know, like as an allegory of like being a good person, mm-hmm. well, it Roald, pays off in the end. Roald Dahl apparently hated shitty children, which is cro- clear across the board in his works. And I, and I like seeing kids being punished. So I think the Gene Wilder one is better. Yes. Well, the Johnny like- Depp version. Johnny, I like the aesthetic and the vibe that he's trying to give, which is because what did I say? But the first one is very um, Howard Hughes meets. Uh, what was the what was the other comparison I used? I don't remember. I don't remember. But but I, Johnny Depp's giving me Michael Jackson a little bit with Tilda Swinton <laughs> mixed with Whitney Houston and Anna Wintour. Yeah. I don't know. But. I don't blame Johnny Depp. I think his aesthetic's interesting, and I think what he's doing with the role's fun. I just think the writing's bad. Like, I didn't laugh at all. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's not good. It's not particularly dark. It's not funny. I hated the Oompa Loompas. I didn't like that the Oompa Loompas one guy, and then the CGI is really distracting. The CGI is atrocious. I think it relied way too much on it. That, And I, I, I've said this before about Tim Burton. I think CGI ruined him. And especially by the time we get a few years later to uh, Alice in Wonderland, which is a nosedive off the precipice of filmmaking. Uh, oh, Beatlemania meets Howard Hughes is how the Gene Wilder version feels to me. But now that I've seen both uh, of these in the recent past, I, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what Timothée does. Well, the one directed by or the one with Timothée is directed by the Paddington director. Oh, and people love Paddington. I haven't seen either Paddington film. We watched Harry and the Hendersons. I haven't watched John Lithgow and Melinda Dillon. Who's the lady? Lainey Kazan. Oh my God. And David Suchet and Donna Michi. Yeah. When Lainey Kazan comes over and she's all being pushy to come in the house, I was so annoyed with her. Do you have any peanut butter? (laughs) Bitch, back up from my door. Like, and then she's like, that was not the time. Do you have any wheat germ? And Melinda Dillon goes, no. She's like, I guess I'll go to the store. Well, give me back my peanut butter then. But you know, I received a few messages on Instagram. Because uh, I posted we were watching it, people not knowing what it was. So, um, which I'm surprised because not only was it a movie, but it was a television series. Yeah. But it's basically about the uh, abominable snowman uh, and then John Lithgow's family. Sasquatch, uh, you mean? Sasquatch, Bigfoot. John Lithgow is driving with his family and hits him and then decides to bring him home. And I think the dumbest part of the movie is when John Lithgow calls the police for help because there's like Bigfoot in my house tearing shit up. The police go, what are you talking about? Bigfoot is fake. Hang up this prank call because if we go down there, it's going to be a war zone. Mm -hmm. And then John Lithgow goes, oh, okay, never mind. I was faking. Sorry, bye. Well, I think he says that he could have jail time or a fine for 
pranking. But well. he's not pranking. Bigfoot is in my house. Right. I'd be like, get your ass down here. I'm like, come on. <laughs> so I think the premise of why Bigfoot stays uh, or Harry is stupid. But in the, the Sasquatch hunters going on in the background. I didn't. This movie didn't catch my attention. It's sweet. And I love how Harry looks. Harry looks like. The, the the makeup, is it Rick Baker, is amazing. The, Harry looks great. And my sister has a friend whose mom looks like Harry. Yeah, so I, I, so the, I, that, that's when I knew that the makeup's good. I've seen some people. That <laughs> Even great. his teeth. Yeah. Like, it's really well done. It's it's excellent. Directed by William Deere. Uh, yeah, and I never saw the series after this. But this was like a favorite growing up when I was a kid. We were staying in a hotel for Thanksgiving. And we just put on... You know, there were two movie channels and well, actually there were, it wasn't even HBO. It was like TNT or something, yeah. but we got sucked into watching four Christmases, which I've never seen, which is with why Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon, which came out in 2008, directed by Seth Gordon. The cast is really impressive. There are several, many Oscar winners. They're, all the parents are Oscar winners. John Voight, Sissy Spacek, uh, Mary Steenburgen and uh, uh, Robert Duvall. Uh, Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon play a couple. They've been dating for three years, but they're very like non-traditional. Like we're not going to get married. We're not going to have kids. We're like, it's almost like they have an open relationship without the other people. Mm -hmm. And this Christmas they decide to go to their four parents' house. Cause of course their parents have to be divorced. Mm -hmm. So there are four different homes to visit. And during the course of that night, visiting the houses, they end up breaking up because Reese decides she wants to have a more traditional relationship. She wants a baby. And a baby. But then in the end, Vince Vaughn agrees that he's willing to talk about it. And then we flash forward a year and see that they that she's had a baby. In secret. I surprisingly thought this movie was funny. Although I think the worst part of the movie is Reese Witherspoon. She's mis- <laughs> she's miscast to me. And you need like the straight man type in there. Because she's playing the straight man. and she, But she's doesn't she's not good at it this movie would have been so much better if they would have cast reese witherspoon and written that character as like a female vince vaughn yeah like she's also kind of wild but they make her this very like sheepish conservative like woman but then it's like why would a lady like her be with vince that could still be funny by the right performer like can you imagine Kristen wig playing that to Vince Vaughn and I bet well because I feel like she would make it a little chaotic Reese Witherspoon just I don't know I don't care for her that much in general and she looks crazy I don't know if there's CGI going on but her face looks like there's a filter on it they're probably it's probably just lighting in and then her wig because there are times when it's clearly a wig and then there are times I'm I'm assuming there were reshoots or and so they had to make her hair match but something about that lady and then she's so Vince Vaughn's huge yeah, he's a big man. And I don't know, whenever I see a really big man next to a super petite lady, it's like... Well, if that's going to be... He it, literally smashes her. Then play with that. <laughs> but it's also play with that, you know? Or, or or that. But, you know, I've always liked Vince Vaughn. Yeah, he's... I he, like, he becomes grating by the end. Oh, yeah, and Dwight Yoakam is the pastor that Mary Steenburgen has fallen in love with. There's a scene in a church that I think is funny. With Vince Vaughn. With, because yeah. of Vince Vaughn. Because he's cast as, they ask him to step up and play Jesus and he, for the nativity scene, and he goes ham. He gets into it. But if you haven't seen Four Christmases, I would recommend it. It's fine. Then we watched a movie my sister selected called Grandma's Boy. Which I remember renting from Hollywood Video. I haven't seen it since then. I had never heard of this shit. I thought it was the movie with um, 
Adam Sandler and his like he's in the bayou with his grandma. What's that called? Oh, that's with Kathy Bates, right? Yeah. Uh, Waterboy. I thought when she pulled out Grandma's Boy, we were about to watch Waterboy. Ben Franklin is the devil. Uh, and then she hyped this movie up so tough. And when it started, I'm like, ooh. Like, it was crickets. I'm like, this shit is not funny. But then it grew on me. And I ended up really liking it. <laughs> well, it's once once Grandma Doris Roberts finally shows up and her two, her two friends. <laughs> two roommates played by uh, Oscar winner Shirley Jones and Shirley Knight. I then it gets fun. Yes, and uh, like Nick Swarzen's kind of cute. It's a, it's got a bunch of Sandler's cronies in it. Rough. Well, and who's the guy who dresses like the Matrix? Joel David Moore. He was funny. <laughs> I think to me a really good job of being creepy. Yeah, I thought this movie was good. I thought that it definitely took like ten minutes to kind of get me where I needed to be. And Linda Cardellini as the female lead. That's, that's right who i thought was cute i just i think al is his name alan covert who looks kind of like they keep saying he's 35 and he he looks he i mean the gag is that he's supposed to be the older because he works for like a video game company so everyone there looks young but then it's like nick swarsden doesn't look young either not like the other guys right. so then i thought yeah the main guy he was my least favorite part of the movie. He seemed like bargain basement Mel Gibson, and he's clearly a lot older than his character's stated age. Uh, and uh, did you think of Blackberry at all watching this? In the, oh, the office environment? Yeah. No, I didn't, but it makes sense. And then Jonah Hill has this moment where he's sucking on this woman's breast at a party. That was awkward. That was awkward because it made me think that has Jonah Hill done that before? Probably. <laughs> probably. The first time he saw a titty, was he was probably. real grateful. But uh, um Nick Swarzen has this he has a romance with Shirley Jones that I think is kind of funny. <laughs> yes. And then uh somebody else is oh Kevin Kevin Nealon is the head of their little video game game company. I think if you're up for a silly movie, I would recommend this one. Lastly, we watched uh, The Naked Gun, which I didn't even know we were going to watch. I went to go to the bathroom and came out and it you, was playing. Your sister's like, we're watching another movie. Okay. Okay. Which is so funny. And your mom was so resistant to it and then laughed so much. <laughs> I know. My mom is, well, I'm, I'm like my mother. You're like, you, yep. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm sure I had seen The Naked Gun before. I didn't remember it. It is a fun movie. I've seen them all before it's been the longest since i've seen the second one you and i watched the third one relatively recently uh the it's from uh what's his name that directed airplane uh and several scary movie movies i thought it was good i laughed a lot it's funny leslie I, nielsen is like was made for that role yes uh, um, i love george kennedy and priscilla of course all right let's take one last break the secret movie this week was my choice, and I chose the 2001 American action techno thriller Swordfish, directed by Dominic Senna. Who you know from? So I know Dominic Senna because he has directed several many Janet Jackson videos, like Let's Wait a While, The Pleasure Principle. He did the Rhythm Nation short film, which won a Grammy, uh, which includes the videos for Rhythm Nation, Miss You Much, The Knowledge. He did Come Back to Me. He's also, uh, well, he directed If, but he also uh, did those compilations that I have uh, from like Rhythm Nation, Demita Joe, Design of a Decade. So he has a 
He's had a long-standing working relationship with Janet Jackson. Also did some Taylor Dane. But his film work, you know, I've always wanted to rewatch his debut, California, with a K, starring Brad Pitt and Juliette Lewis as serial killers, I believe. Because in my mind's eye, I remember liking it as a kid. But his uh, other filmmaking, he's probably best known as a filmmaker for Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage and Angelina, which was the year before this film. Um, but Whiteout with Kate Beckinsale and Tom Skerritt is tragically bad and you and i saw his last film season of the witch with nick cage in theaters mm. and also not good why did i choose this film so my sister has an interesting film library mm -hmm. and i asked you to pick some options so you picked um several movies i think like eight mm -hmm. and then i asked my brother-in-law could you pick a film and then he gave us like three options from the eight and then he really sold Swordfish. Like he's like, this is a really good movie. And I've never seen it before. I did not care for this movie. <laughs> I did not either. And it also went in. It went in my head and went right out. <laughs> okay. Not... The premise: a covert counter-terrorist unit called Black Cell, led by Gabriel Shear, wants the money to help finance their war against international terrorism, but it's all locked away. Gabriel brings in convicted hacker Stanley Jobson to help him. <laughs> Okay, so Gabriel Shear, this counter-terrorist who runs Black Cell, is played by John Travolta. In a Razzie-nominated role. Oh, he's so awful. John Travolta, basically, he... So he's a counter-terrorist, but what... So what he says he does is, like, if someone attacks the U.S., like, they bomb a donut shop, I'll go back and bomb their entire town. Mm -hmm. Or if they, you know shoot a person i'll go back and set their entire school on fire or some it's like he wants to make it seem like if you do anything to the united states we will come back 10 times harder which will scare anyone from ever attacking us Please but no. he's not the government he's just like this right. private person who's just doing this shit no one's asking him to do please note this opened in june of 2001 right before <laughs> yeah so he has like the premise stated he has a bunch of money i think it's like nine billion dollars locked up so he needs someone to help him hack it hugh jackman plays stanley jobson and we see that hugh jackman has just got uh, been released from prison for hacking into some federal platform F some, i think the department the of defense or something was it F okay was uh, something so he's just gotten out and he's uh told that he can never get on the internet again <laughs> yeah he can't access the internet or use a computer so he's just living in his mobile home playing golf like like on top of the roof shirtless mm -hmm. when one day Halle Berry and her convertible Jaguar pulls up looking fantastic her name is Ginger Knowles saying that my boss needs your help and he'll pay you to just meet with him so how do they convince Hugh Jackman his he has a daughter, Molly, mm -hmm. and he doesn't have custody of her. His ex-wife, who's like a porn star, who's now shacked up with like the porn king. Played by Drea DiMatteo of Sopranos fame. She's like, you'll never see your daughter again. So he's trying to figure out how to get like a lawyer to get custody. And John Travolta knows that. So Halle Berry's like, yeah, I'll, like here's a hundred grand right now. This can help you start the process. You know, and then if you do this job, you'll make enough money that you can afford to get your daughter back. Which is so dumb. Like, there's no assurance that just because he can afford a lawyer, he can have his daughter back. He's right. a convicted felon with no stable housing. But anyway, he goes and he finds out that Hugh, or that John Travolta needs him to get this money. 
so Hugh very easily gets it. But Don Cheadle plays like a federal agent who's trying to stop John Travolta. Mm -hmm. So that's going on in the background. We also find out that Halle Berry is a DEA agent undercover. So we're told. But everything culminates in a bombing that is actually the opening of the film. Mm -hmm. So Travolta's trying to like do this revenge shit and blows up some building. And in the process, Hugh Jackman is able, well, Halle Berry gets killed, so we think. And then Hugh Jackman kills John Travolta by shooting down his helicopter. So we think he's dead. Mm -hmm. But early in the film, John Travolta says that it's really easy to trick people because their brains believe what they see. So the final scene of the film is we see Halle Berry did not die even though we saw her hanging from a noose and being shot in the chest. And there's an impact, so it wasn't a blank. And we see a wound. She is now in costume, and she goes to a bank and basically withdraws $9 billion by just giving an account number and a password. Which is Swordfish. And that's where the title of the movie mm -hmm. comes from. The password is Swordfish. And she doesn't even say, like, capital S or no. whatever. <laughs> And then we see that she meets John Travolta on a boat who's also out of costume. And they ride off into the sunset. And Hugh Jackman's character, we see that earlier on, he was transferred $10 million. So we can hope that he's now able to get his daughter back. Man, this story was so dumb. I didn't care about any of these people. And then you have Sam Shepard in there as a senator that's involved somehow. Oh, and then... Uh, yeah, a, Sam Shepard's in cahoots with John Travolta. A brief bit for uh, Tom Cruise's cousin, William Mapother. Mapother? That's right. He's in it with nothing to do. Nope. This was so boring for like <laughs> what they're called... What did uh, it get described as? An action techno thriller? I mean, the only thing that is good is the cinematography and the soundtrack which was produced by paul oakenfold so as you can imagine it's a lot of like as i guess you would call back then techno that's it this story is cockadoodoo. Yeah. the casting is distracting because halle berry serves the function of being a femme fatale mm -hmm. and of course looks stunning and then we'll talk about her gratuitous uh titty scene but john travolta as the villain is laughable he's so unbelievable i don't know why you would cast him well i mean this was after his pulp fiction career resurgence he looks so dumb he has that same pulp fiction hair like, i mean but you know this is also around the time of battlefield earth and another dumb thriller domestic disturbance ugh. Uh, he looks like a, a, a vampire and then speaking of closeted gay men hugh jackman like he's just so stiff and then we get two moments where he's ogling Halle Berry that is so uncomfortable because it feels so unnatural and then he's ogling these three women who end up getting like half naked in a pool that felt so gratuitous and dumb the scene that I thought was the the worst was he some blonde woman is giving him a blowjob while John Travolta is forcing him at gunpoint to do some serious hacking work. We're, we're, we're told that this level of hacking by like a master hacker would take 60 minutes, but he has to do it in 60 seconds and he doesn't start until the 45 second with until with 45 seconds left. That was so dumb. It's ridiculous. I will say it's nice to see Hugh Jackman having like a regular body. He did look, he's very handsome, mm -hmm. but yeah let me just go through these notes um so the opening of the film is we see an explosion and then we hear travolta 
he talks he talks a lot about movies in in oh, this movie and he mentions about- dog day afternoon and saying and then a character says well the bad guy can't win so it's like foreshadowing well the the the, the script is fucking stupid by, it's so dumb. by skip woods by the way who wrote uh one of the diehard movies and x the wolverine origins movie which is fucking stupid but they're uh approaching dog day afternoon like it's a fictional film that's yeah. based on a true story um Halle Berry looks amazing. I hate her hair, but it is very 2001, so I can't knock it. But all I kept thinking is um, the movie Dream Scenario, Julianne Nicholson has kind of a similar, like inspired by style. And I kept thinking she only wishes she looked like, like I'm imagining that she maybe told her, like showed her hairstylist a picture of Halle Berry and Swordfish and that's what she got. Halle Berry's <laughs> hair reminded me of like a cross between a Mary J wig from that period and Betty Boop. That's right. <laughs> yeah, those little that's, hooks. That's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> uh, again, she's stunning. Her body is snatched. Yes. Um, we're told that Hugh is Wired Magazine's man of the year. <laughs> like there's some hacker magazine that has named this like Hacker ex felon, like man of the year. Okay. The writing, just the storytelling is terrible. The actual story is pointless. And then the dialogue, when it relates to the hacking and the tech, sounds like someone who just looked up, like, what are some hacker terms? Mm -hmm. There's a moment, and there are many moments like this where. Hugh gets asked, like, how did you break the code? And he's like, I dropped a logic bomb through the back door. I don't know what any of this means, but it sounds dumb. There's a montage where Jackman's sitting in front of all these computers, and he is doing his damnedest as an actor to make that seem entertaining, where he's, like, reacting to whatever's going on in these multiple screens. (laughs) It's painful. There's a moment when Hallie is seducing Hugh, and then she says, are you surprised a girl with an IQ over 70 can give you a (laughs) hard-on? That made me laugh. I laughed and I <laughs> when we're told about the Travolta's character, uh, there's a line, he exists in a world beyond your world. And Ugh. then you see John Travolta in the next shot. And it's like that man. That's literally my next note. And like it's how pointless I mean, it's pointless to say how crazy he looks, but it's just like what who thought I don't if I were the producer of this film, like y'all I'm not wasting my money and make this movie of because it's guaranteed to be a joke once you see john travolta yes it's guaranteed we couldn't get a what's that one guy who is in a movie i think with halle berry where he's stalking her and he's crazy bruce willis no i think bruce willis might be in this movie that i'm talking about but it has this other guy who's a really cool name it's like an italian sounding name and i think halle berry is a hacker in it Halle Berry's a G- G- Giovanni Rabisi. Oh, no, oh, he's a short little thing. They couldn't yeah. get Giovanni Rabisi to play this counter terrorist. I mean, oh I- yeah, like two thousand. That's <laughs> he would have been fresh off the gift. And he's cute. Oh, you still haven't seen? Is it the other sister with Juliette Lewis? He's in it. Giovanni and Juliette Lewis both are special needs. Oh, I would watch that because <laughs> I like him. Every time I see him, like I think he's really cute and he does a good job. Oh, there's a scene where he gets drunk and professes his love to her. In that, okay, that we is... need to talk about Halle Berry showing her titties. Oh my God! Like this is the if it... you look up the word gratuitous in the dictionary, it, it would should be, be a picture scene. of Halle Berry's titties because there was no point. <laughs> well, and you brought up a good point. Like this black woman 
sun tanning for what? Well, I th- yeah, I just understand why is she sunbathing topless? Because she's doing it as if like she needs to get some sun, which she doesn't, and then she doesn't look uneven. So then it's like you just want your breast out. It just felt so pointless. But then we find out that in real life, Halle Berry admitted that she knew it was gratuitous, but she did it because they gave her an extra five hundred thousand, and she felt like it'd be a good way to get over her anxiety about her body and, and nude scenes sure but it was also a marketing ploy for the so film. i don't knock her for doing it it's her body and it's her bank account and i don't knock the producers for trying to get her to do it because that's all people talk about in relation to this dumbass movie that's and i'm true. sure many many people bought tickets to see her titties mm-hmm. but i just think in the in like in this movie it just is so pointless it's so pointless especially because there's a more striking scene with her and her underwear where it's a stupid plot point because it's like, why are you, if you were really DEA and you're showing yourself as wired, I mean, it's it, clearly it's a red herring, but it, it's su- such a stupid it's storytelling a stupid scene. But she fuck, looks great in that. Like just showing her. She looks so, yeah, we see her in a little skimpy under like brown panties looks amazing. I feel like that topless scene, she could have just had on like a skimpy bikini top, but whatever. But then it made me think, cause I forgot who brought it up about Olivier Martinez beating up, gabriel aubrey yeah your sister oh my sister (laughs) over halle berry and then looking at the pictures of olivier whooped gabriel's ass he got a good old-fashioned beat down (laughs) and then it made me think remember when halle berry had had that hit and run yeah and she ran to the hospital to look at her face she yeah yeah, she was driving that rental of ford explorer and (laughs) hit that tore that lady's car up and broke i think broke her wrist or something and then halle berry had a gash on her forehead yeah she she, had to get attended so she ran from the scene of the accident to go get that taken care of because i can't scar my money maker yeah i mean i guess if i were her i probably would be more concerned with my face than this lady's wrist but around the time of Catwoman, i think yeah you already alluded to this, but the scene where Hugh is hacking and they're trying to make it look interesting with multiple screens and him jumping up and cl- that was the dumbest. That was as uncomfortable as Tom Cruise getting on that couch. Yes, actually. Like on, on Oprah's couch, getting please, all excited about Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes. Like, please stop this now. Okay. I thought this movie should have been called Not Without My Daughter because you could have a drinking game for the number of times they mention Holly. John or Hallie, Hallie mention. Like- Hugh's daughter Holly, is that her name or Molly? I think it's Molly. What? It doesn't matter. They mention her daughter every time he wants to like back out, and it's so annoying. And oh, then no. you meet the daughter, and it's like I would have let her go. It's ho- it's Holly. <laughs> Holly's screwing me up. It's Holly. Oh. oh God, I hated how that little girl looked. Yeah. Oh. I'm like y'all could have her, I, or like the, the stakes are so low. This girl is being taken care of by her mother. She's not, well, at a point they do take this girl hostage. So then he really is invested in getting her back. But it's like, there's, there, there's no timeline, like him getting his daughter back. There isn't like some impending court date that he needs money for a lawyer for. And then John Travolta's activities seem so like random. Like it, it needed to focus more on maybe like, there's a countdown to getting this $9 billion and all the pressure surrounding that. I hated this like secondary plot line of the daughter and getting her back and needing a lawyer. But when the first scene with Halle Berry, where 
she says, well, she's something about his daughter. Well, her name and he tossed her out of his trailer and immediately tries to call his daughter. It's like, did you just, did you forget about her? Yeah. What, what? There's a moment when Travolta says that he's had to change his identity so many times. And I kept thinking like, how, how, how looking like that? What, what, how, what could you do? <laughs> It's like we recognize that big ass face. Is this the face we ended up with? Uh, okay. When the the wife, like, we're told that Hugh can have shared custody of his kid, and I just thought I'd be so happy with that. Like, he really is making like he's in all this trouble over not wanting shared custody. So you don't think the mom should have time with the daughter? <laughs> well, they allude to the fact that the mother is going to end up prostituting the daughter because of the business she's in. And Dre, do I say this lately? Drea De Matteo, De Mario, they she's in basically one scene, but she we see her waking up to take that phone call from Hugh Jackman, and she's immediately swilling down the booze, mascara running. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm being overly sensitive, but the imagery of Halle Berry, a black woman in this film, being hanged by a noose was, was too much for me. And creepy. then they shoot her ass. I'm mm-hmm. like, we didn't need that. Who who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> then, so the final sort of showdown involves like Hugh Jackman, or I'm sorry, John Travolta on a bus with all these people with bombs on them and which felt very speed to be. Mm-hmm. And then the re- the way he's able to escape is that he has a helicopter lift the bus, which I was like, that helicopter must be strong as hell. Cause it, it doesn't even look like a real helicopter. It looks like the skeleton of a helicopter. And that helicopter is able to pick up an, like a city bus filled with people. But I thought that was so stupid. And then the thing that t- fully took me out is one of the law enforcement people is trying to tell the cop in charge like that they lost the bus and the guy in charge is like how the hell did you lose the city bus and the way this cop is trying to explain to him like the bus is airborne that writing was terrible it's terrible this is like michael bay level i mean i'm not trying to be hyperbolic it is terrible it's bad. And then, you know, it doesn't help when it keeps referencing great or films like Dog Day Afternoon or Sugarland Express comes right. up at one point. It's like just, Y'all might want to pipe down on these like, better movies we could be watching. Stop making me think of something infinitely better, please. Oh, I don't have shit else to say about this terrible movie. What would you give it? Oh, a one and a half. It's, I would give it one and a half out of five. It's garbage. It exists in a world beyond my world. I'll say oh. that. Well, what are we, what are we, well, before we do that, you're, you wanted to mention a book you're reading. Oh yeah. I, well, I finished it. Um, oh. I read, uh, well, I finished a couple things. Didn't, oh, I finished the Jim Thompson and uh, Disclaimer by Renee Knight, which I'd wanted to read because Alfonso Cuaron has made a mini series out of it to come out next year starring Kate Blanchett and Sasha Baron Cohen. And it's based on the cover. I thought it was a true crime kind of thing. It's not. I did not really care for this story, and I hope that uh, Quaron makes some significant changes. Uh, it's very much along the lines of something like uh, Girl on the Train, um, about this woman, a television journalist played by Blanchett, who in the book's a documentarian, I think, and she suddenly gets sent this book. And as she's reading it, it's uh, she recognizes the main character as someone... It, it, as it's her and this deep dark secret that she's kept it's this domestic drama about white fragile people that i i, I found so boring i just i thought fine if this is gonna uh unspool all of your lives because of this fucking stupid ass thing then fine, go just go kill yourselves it's i was so annoyed at these people Dang. in this book that 
it's just like shut the fuck up there are more things to worry about God. jesus fucking christ yeah i was annoyed at this but i love kate <laughs> so i hope that something else magical happens with the storytelling for a mini series yeah i i can't i can't express how disappointed i was based on who is behind the adaptation of it but anyway well, i'm glad you got that off your chest anyway and right now i'm about to finish uh the classic novel contempt by alberto moravia who which is excellent that's an unwinding of a relationship told from a very paranoid anxious man's point of view and uh, I wanted to read it because I haven't watched the 1964 Jean-Luc Godard version with Brigitte Bardot and Jack Palance. Uh, and so I'm excited to rewatch that, but I wanted to, I highly recommend, I've read another Moravia book, The Voyeur, I think, but which is lesser known, but this is, it's very good. Is there anything else you'd like to say? We were talking about what's going on this week. Uh, we're seeing the color purple, the new Willy Wonka movie. And poor things you see. Uh, we got an Isabel film uh, that I'm jonesing to watch, and uh, something else. That sounds isn't, like a lot. Isn't there something else? I hope not. Oh, there's a new Godzilla movie we're not seeing. Oh, Eileen. Oh, I actually watched the Godzilla movie. Um, the new there's a new Ren the Renaissance, a film by Beyonce comes out this week. Oh God, there's too much. Um, and then, but Eileen, I think we really need to cover. I loved Eileen. All right. All done. Mm -hmm. Bye. <laughs>